This week on the show, we're installing BSDs on the QB port 1, or show you how to do that, self-hosting a static site with OpenBSD, HTTPD, and RelayD as a how-to, NetBSD can also run a Minecraft server and how Ruben Schade does that, a little story about the yes Unix command and how to make this better, faster, amazing, shell history of Unix, OpenBGPD 7.5 release, and more in this week's episode of BSD. More cat content. (laughs) BSD Now, episode 467, Minecraft on NetBSD. Recorded on the 27th of July, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backups for truly paranoids. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Treuschling. And, I, and I'm Tom Jones. And, and welcome back to our uh, amazing show where we talk about all the things that are happening in BSD. And this week we're starting off with a post on MacBoy's blog, installing BSDs on Cubiboard One. I do not know what the Cubiboard One is. FreeBSD, download the SD card image for ARM v7 generic SD from here, which is probably a link to the FreeBSD file server. Uh, burn to the SD card as usual. This image does not contain a U-boot capable of booting Cubiboard One. I couldn't figure out how to download FreeBSD packages without having FreeBSD installed but U-Boot images for Cubeboard 1 is available in the Parabola repos. After unpacking it, write it to the SD card with a DD command, uh, and there's some more info linked. Boot, go through the installation wizard, log in, out of the box, FreeBSD takes 2.3 gigabytes of space. Uh, FreeBSD spoofed the MAC address for the Cubeboard's built-in NIC for some reason. Uh, overall, it works well, boots quickly. The usual shell feels snappy. NetBSD. Download the armv7.img.gz right from the homepage. Burn to the SD card as usual. Add uBoot. The command is slightly different from FreeBSD. It's a DD command. Um, download .tg sets from here and place them on a fat partition on a USB stick. Insert both the SD card and USB stick. Boot. Mount the partition on a USB stick. An adventure in and of itself. The name of the block device is different across commands. At slash dev rsdod. SDOD, not dev SDOD, dev RSDOE. I don't remember what I used for mounting. See the link in the details. Run sysinstall command, choose local directory, set the binary sets dir to the mounted USB partition. Clear all the other text fields, otherwise it will fail with some cryptic error. Please choose reinstall additional sets and minimal install. Reboot, login, out of the box, NetBSD takes 2.2 gigabytes of space. Um, NetBSD is significantly f- slower than FreeBSD. IO operations, installing packages, SSH logins. By default, the hostname is the one received from DHCP server. NetBSD used the native MAC address of the built-in NIC, just like Debian. OpenBSD. I followed the installation manual page to get it onto the SD card and sent the board into a reboot loop with DRAM init failure. I searched for it on the web, but didn't find any obvious solutions workarounds. Not really interested in digging into it in the moment. I want to use this board as a CI target. The BSD ARM v7 hard float combination should be exotic enough to catch portability issues. 
uh, and this was written by Alexi Kovura, and here's a great comparison of installations. Really quick, done. Uh, mm-hmm. None of us seem, none of us come off well here. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so should, I should check out the Kubi board because it seems like it's a nice little board that runs a couple of BSDs. I think well. I think the FreeBSD issue is probably that the driver doesn't know it can get the MAC address from Flash or U-Boot is meant to send it across rather than getting it from Flash and FreeBSD just doesn't know. But I totally agree with the difficulty of... like We have a generic SD card image for ARMv7, which is great, but without a FreeBSD machine, I don't know how you set one of these boards up. Mm. I mean, I was helping someone set up FreeBSD to boot on a PC Engine's APU2 and without a FreeBSD machine, you can't configure the serial port so you can't like do an install or connect to the machine. Uh, yeah. I was like, oh, we have a serious blind spot here where all the FreeBSD developers use FreeBSD all the time. <laughs> we don't realize how hard it is if you don't use FreeBSD. <laughs> well, okay. Maybe someone will pick this up here. Uh, we have next a self-hosting, a static website with OpenBSD, HTTPD, and RelayD. Uh, so on citizen428.net, we found that uh, their blog gets generated with Hugo, which they're generally happy with. Until recently, they hosted the static files on Netlify, but now decided to get their own little server again. There are two main reasons for that. First, they actually missed doing some sysadmin work. Second, the internet was supposed to be a federated system and, and they don't want to outsource everything to a few tech giants. Oh, there's that. Uh, operating system choice. OpenBSD has always been one of my favorite server operating systems for reasons that are nicely summarized at why OpenBSD rocks. That's linked from the show or from the episode uh, show notes. Yeah. Uh, most people seem to be drawn to it because of the promise of enhanced security, which others find debatable. Another link to another article. But they primarily enjoy it for being a simple yet pretty full-featured system out of the box. Okay, so when they decided to go back to hosting their own site, they went for a VM hosted with OpenBSD Amsterdam. Yeah, yes, I hear a lot of things. Oh, that's OpenBSD.Amsterdam. Who donate part of each subscription to the OpenBSD Foundation. Thanks for that. So certain things start first. SSL certificates. Since they didn't mind a short downtime for their personal blog, they started appointing their A and uh, quad A records at their new IPs and added a CAA record for Let's Encrypt. So they show how to do that in a little output from the shell. Uh, OpenBSD comes with its own Acme client configured by etc acme-client.conf with a man page link as well. Uh, so they provide the uh, Let's Encrypt instructions uh, in another post or in a follow-up code listing here. First, they set up Let's Encrypt as a certificate authority, then set up the certificates for their domain. And note that in this one, the line says domain full chain certificate etc slash SSL citizen 428.net.crt because we'll circle back to that in a bit. Okay, web server part. OpenBSD also comes with its own minimal web server, HTTPD. It's very easy to configure with a man page link and their initial configuration looked something like the following. So you listen on port 80, uh, return a 301 if nothing is found uh, and fairly straightforward SSL configuration. You can find these in the uh, linked blog post. This redirects all HTTP traffic to HTTPS and configures the SSL uh, certificates and 
some other things like document root and the location for the let's encrypt http challenge so far so good this setup scores an a plus at ssl labs not too bad alas the result on security headers was a lot less primitive uh, they think their initial score was a d or something moving on to a relay d uh, since HTTPD is kept simple on purpose, it doesn't allow us to set the relevant security headers. Enter RelayD, a daemon to relay and dynamically redirect incoming connections to a target host. We can use this to terminate TLS, forward requests to a local web server listening on port 8080, and set some response headers, abbreviated to clar for clarity. And they provide the etc RelayD conf as well. Very nice. Of course, we also have to reconfigure HTTPD. We no longer terminate TLS and we need to listen on port 8080 where RelayD will be relaying to. And they provide the updated uh, HTTPD conf. Uh, restarting both services and bingo. We're scoring an A on security headers again. However, there was one small issue. Their SSL lab score was now capped at a B with the following explanatory message. This server certificate chain is incomplete. Great capped to B. No bueno, what to do? After some googling, they found this blog post, which pointed them in the right direction. RelayD looks for certificate chains in etcssl private uh, slash name colon port dot key and etcssl name colon port dot crt, falling back to etcssl private name dot key and same for name dot crt respectively. The original ECMI client conf did save the full chain with the dot pem extension, whereas the crt file uh, or .crt file only contained a certificate for the specific domain. There probably would have been more elegant ways to solve this, but the easiest solution was to just store the full chain in the .crt file, as mentioned above. So not too difficult. Compressed HTTP responses is another part of this tutorial. Uh, let's skip a little bit to the odds and ends. Since they don't want to worry about forgetting certificate renewals, they added the following to etc daily.local. Just a reminder, refreshing let's encrypt certificates and let the Agni client handle that. And after that is done, our CCTL loads the relay D. This will check if a new certificate is available and restart relay D. They also set up a very basic firewall with PF. They also provide those rule sets. And last but not least, they added a .forward file in the user's home directory to the mails generated by etc daily and the daily security scanning it forwarded to their real address where they're not likely to actually read them. Oh uh, yes, the daily spam. Summary. Overall, this was a fairly quick and painless migration and they're fairly happy with the outcome. Not only are they fully in charge of their own site again, it still scores an A plus on SSL labs an A on security headers and an A plus on the Mozilla Observatory. It's also still eligible for ASTS preload and generally scores well on page speed insights. Not too shabby for little VM without a CDN. Uh, they link to all the resources they used and the links are also embedded in the tutorial themselves at various places. Very cool, nice tutorial. Okay, um, not everything can be a headline. And so next we have the news roundup. And first in the news roundup, we have a post by Ruben Schneid on his website, rubenerd.com. And it's titled, NetBSD can also run a Minecraft server. And Ruben writes, last Monday, I wrote about our FreeBSD Minecraft server. Clara and I run Minecraft on our home FreeBSD server in a jail, which keeps Java and other dependency contained in one isolated place. 
Theoretically, you can run the server anywhere that supports Java, including Linux and possibly even NetBSD, though I haven't tested the latter. Well, I decided I couldn't leave it at that. The good news is yes, you can run a Minecraft server on, your, on my other favorite OS too. This post explores how I went about it, and I'm sure there were other ways. So getting Java installed. Once you've installed NetBSD, configured networking, configured package IN, I've never heard of this. Oh, it's package source. Um, you need to run, uh, you need to get an open JDK to run Minecraft. Minecraft 1.17 onwards requires open JDK 17, but open JDK 16 is the latest in the most recent snapshot as of July, 2022. You can search to confirm if this is still the case. Package in search open JDK. If it's still 16, you can pull current packages by opening your package repo file and changing the repo URI, in my case, changing from 9.0 to 9.0 underscore current. Um, there's a URL. Thank you so much to Runat for working on this. He does so much great work for the NetBSD community. I feel I owe him at least a coffee or a beer next time I'm able to go to Japan. Now we can install, along with a few other useful tools, um, package in install OpenJDK 17, fetch, and tmux. Running Minecraft. From here, running Minecraft is basically the same as any Java-enabled server. I put all my files in one place, uh, make dir opt Minecraft, then log in as my local user and start, um, goes to opt Minecraft and fetches a URL from above.jar, which I think is where Minecraft is. Well, could be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now we can start. Uh, OpenJDK 17-java-jar minecraft.jar. You'll notice Java will throw a system not supported exception which those of you on NetBSD know all too well. From my testing, you can safely ignore it. And don't forget to accept the EULA after you've run the server for the first time. And he reads a said command to accept the EULA. Uh, creating a launch script, I like to symlink the latest version of the server to minecraft.jar, ln-s, um, and then link. Uh, then reference it in launch.sh with tmux to persist the server after disconnecting. I like to give Minecraft more memory too, and he gives Minecraft four gigabytes of memory uh, by giving the Java Virtual Machine more memory, and then we're good to go. My next step would be creating a proper CH root environment for Java and Minecraft, similar to what I do with FreeBSD jails. I've had a proper NetBSD CH root exploration post in the works for years. I'll tidy up and post soon. In the meantime, you can also install all the same extensions of third-party servers I referenced in my FreeBSD Minecraft post last week. I'm chuffed this works. That's a great word. I love the word chuffed. Mm, yeah. Well chuffed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, our greetings go out to Australia, to Sydney, uh, where Ruben sits and writes, and we will try to get him on this show as an interview, but we'll have to coordinate the time zones and availability as conferences are starting again. It'd be, it'd be really cool if there was a game that had like clustered servers and then you could run one on FreeBSD, one on NetBSD, and one on OpenBSD and cluster them oh, together. That would oh, be yes. fun. I don't know if it, I don't play, really play games. Definitely not games you can host yourself. I don't know what what that would be. If anyone has there's, a suggestion, like if there's a clustered OpenTDD mod, that would be cool. Oh, yes. Open Transport Tycoon. <laughs> ah, the hours spent uh, building railroads. And, Invested uh, the in your railroad career. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, excellent. But I think you can do uh, similar hours in uh, Minecraft. I never went into that. It was probably uh, after I became normal. I don't know. Uh, it, <laughs> it's, it's, I hear it's fun, but uh, it never caught me. 
Uh, but this next might, might be interesting to you. We have a little story about the yes Unix command. Ah, yes. Uh, it's a very positive command, it turns out. And it has a very short man page, which fits on one screen. So that's my, uh, it doesn't uh, start here with the article, but that's my take on yes. Uh, so the article goes, what's the simplest Unix command you know? There's echo, which prints a string to stand it out, and true, which always terminates with an exit code of zero. Oh, true is also very short, yeah. Does true well, as a man page? But there was, like, it was either true or false that was a zero byte file. <laughs> and when you execute it, it would, like, the default exit code would be true or false. I can't remember which way it was. And so, like, it wasn't until, like, like POSIX came along, like something really stupid where it was made to be longer than zero bytes. Ah, yes. And so we couldn't do this anymore. <laughs> uh, but, but back to the article. Among the series of simple Unix commands, there's also yes. If you execute it without arguments, you get an infinite stream of Ys separated by a new line. So why, 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 why? What seems to be pointless in the beginning turns out to be pretty helpful. So you can do yes pipe uh, shell boring installation.sh. Ever installed this program, which required you to type Y and hit enter to keep going? Yes to the rescue. It will carefully fulfill its duty so you can keep watching Tang. That's also not my generation. I, I'm totally out of the whole new kids game. Anyway, um, that's fine. I'm, I'm old. Writing yes. Here's a basic version in uh, basic. Beginner's all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Uh, so 10 print y, 20 go to 10. And here's the same thing in Python, while true print y. Simple, huh? Not so quick. Turns out the program is quite slow. So they do python yes.py, pipe that to pv-r, redirect that to def null, and that only takes or only produces 4.17 megabytes per second. Compare that with the built-in version on their Mac, which produces 34.2 million. Oh, yeah, these are maybe bytes. Yeah, okay, per second. Anyway, that's faster. So they try to write a quicker version, Rust. Their first attempt is printed. That's a bit more uh, difficult to read here. Some explanations. The string we want to print in a loop is the first command line parameter and is printed expletive. Expletive? How do you pronounce that? I don't know. I was, I was looking for Expletive? Expletive? Expletive. Expletive, okay. Learning English while I'm recording. Yeah, expletive. Expletive, okay. <laughs> they learned this word from the Yes Man page. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. It's not a very common word. Yeah. That's why I was stumbling upon it. Uh, they use unwrap or to get the, the word from the parameters. In case the parameter is not set, we use Y as default. The default parameter gets converted from a string slice and into an own string of the heap string using into. Okay, that's Rust uh, internals. Uh, let's test this. This is 2.35 megabytes only. Wow. Whoops, that doesn't look any better. It's even slower than the Python version. That caught their attention, so they looked around for the source code of a C implementation. Here we go. Someone is now uh, on fire about a quicker version. Uh, so they found the very first version of the program actually released with version 7 Unix and famously authored by Ken Thompson on January 10, 1979. Well, that's probably a good programmer exercise in many universities starting out writing C programs. No magic here. Compare that to the 128-line... What? Nochmal. Again. 128-line version from the GNU Core Utils, which is mirrored on GitHub. 
After 25 years, it is still under active development. The YES program, mind you. Last code change happened around a year ago, which is quite fast. 854 megabytes per second. Oh, a new record. Okay. Uh, the important part is at the end, repeatedly output the buffer until there's a write error, uh, then fail. Okay, so they clear the write buffer here. Okay. Oh, the output buffer, yeah. Uh-huh. So they simply use a buffer to make write operations faster. The buffer size is defined by a constant named buff size, which gets chosen on each system so as to make I.O. efficient. On their system, that was defined as 1024 bytes. They actually had better performance with 8192 bytes, and they extended the Rust program. Uh, long story short, running that gave him 51.3 megabytes per second. Excellent. That's not... Not too shabby. But then they found this Reddit post uh, where the author talks about 10.2 gigabytes per second. Here, there's a speed increase. Uh, then they have now updated that blog post with uh, comments and replies from the Rust community. So they didn't want to uh, lose out here. Uh, the optimized code has a 3 gigabyte per second breaking record now. Uh, that's a whole different ballgame to describe some of the additions they did to that program. Uh, lessons learned at the end. The trivial program, yes, turns out to be not so trivial after all. It uses output buffering and memory alignment to improve performance. Re-implementing Unix tools is fun and makes me appreciate the nifty tricks which makes our computers fast. Yeah, the, the top reply on that Reddit thread is, it's a shame they didn't finish their kernel, but at least they got yes working at 10 gigabit per second. Yeah, that's significant. Okay, next up we have a PDF hosted on Gemini accessed through a HTTP Gemini portal. Uh, it didn't work the first time I came across it. And the PDF is Shell History Unix and it's written by Christian Lee Seibold uh, in, in September 2020. And they write, uh, Shell is a textual interface that allows you to type commands to do various things, including running programs and running files that list a sequence of commands initially called runcoms and later shell scripts. Shells seem to stem from one operating system, MIT CTSS, which was very influential in both the Unix line and the DOS Windows line of operating systems. As we will see, MIT, DEC, and Bell Labs influenced the computer space deeply. In this article, we discuss the Unix line starting with runcom and multics, a project Mac operating system with the goal of being a successor to CTSS. Runcom and multics. Unix shells have had a very long history, and it all starts with a program written by Louis, Louis Puzin for the MIT CTSS operating system called Runcom, which stood for run commands. It executed commands from a file called a runcom. According to Kerning and Ritchie, RC configuration files from Unix descended from this. Tom Van Vleck also gives the origins of Unix use of RC to runcom, and notes that the first time he read the term shell was from Multics documentation created by Doug Eastwood. According to Louis, he coined the term shell. Multics started development in 1964 as a project of MIT's Project Mac in collaboration with General Electric and Bell Labs. During the year of 1964, Christopher Strachey visited MIT. Uh, Louis thought that Strachey's macro generator design, particularly the techniques for quoting and passing arguments, was a good base for a command language, who's then wrote a paper about a f and a flowchart designing what would become Multic Shell, a term he coined just before he left. After leaving, the shell was implemented by, for Multics by Glenda Schroeder and another programmer from GE. 
This early implementation of the shell included the basic syntax of command argument one, argument two, with arguments separated by spaces and terminated by semicolons, strings as return values. Command substitution and iteration, which allowed you to write multiple elements in parentheses, and the shell would run each version of the command with each element. So print abc.ep1 became print .a, print a .epl, semicolon print b.epl, print c.epl. It allowed you to evaluate commands differently, where command would substitute the return string into the command called an active command, um, and bar command would substitute the return string into the command as another command substitution called a neutral command, and bar bar command would not substitute anything into the command called an empty command. Pipe syntax was later added to in the to Multex in the 1980s. According to Vleck, IO call and stream manipulation could achieve the same effect as Unix pipes just without the conventional pipe syntax. However, according to Dennis Ritchie, he doesn't think this is true or is true only in a weak sense because Multics spliceable IO modules required the modules to be specially coded in such a way that they could be used for no other purpose. However, it does note that they have no general IO redirection mechanism embodying the name IO streams that they would notion would become very clumsy. Multics also had a search path that was used to search for commands that could be used within the shell. Unix v1 to v6, the Thompson shell, due to dissatisfaction with the Multic system, Bell Labs withdrew from the project in 1969. Plans and development of a new operating system for the PDP-7 was started in 1969. Much of this work, including the command interpreter shell, was done by Ken Thompson. The shell eventually had IO redirection inspired by Multic's IO streams. In 1970, Bell Labs purchased a PDP-11 and work on a port of the operating system to the PDP-11 was started. 1970 was also the year the name Unix was proposed. Later in 72, pipes, a specific form of core routine, were added to the shell uh, by suggestion from Douglas McElroy, who invented the concept years prior. While this was not known at the time, Dartmouth Time Sharing System, DTSS, also had a very, very similar concept to pipes. At first, pipes were used by stacking up the commands one after another. However, later on, the syntax was switched so that the greater than character was used. According to both John Mashey and David Korn, this shell had goto and if commands. While Multics originally had the search path, Unix decided to give up this idea initially. According to Doug McElroy, the search path was added in v3, v3 Unix. However, according to Brian Kroning, the search path was added in the programmer's workbench shell. Um, work on the Mashi PWB shell, uh, which is the programmer's workbench. Work on a replacement shell for Unix was started in mid-1975, according to Stephen Bourne. The shell was written by John Mashi and a group of other people, including Alan Glosser, and was distributed as part of the programmer's workbench Unix. New commands and features were added to Unix shell, including switch, while, and variables, three of which were derived from per-process data. Some of the existing commands were also improved, including if, else, and if. PWB shell also included a search path so that a sequence of directories could be searched for commands, which was later copied by the Born shell. The Born shell. In 1975, it was decided that the shell for Unix would be rewritten to fix issues. At this time, Ken Thompson went off to Berkeley for a year, so the shell was maintained by Stephen Born at Bell Labs. The first version of the shell was deployed in 1976. Much of Born shell's syntax was inspired by Algol 68. The shell added shell scripts multi-character variables, here docs, command substitution, path searching, interruptible weight, pattern matching, and string quoting. There were no length restrictions on strings, goto was removed, and there were no comments. 
environment variables were added later in 1978, and functions echo and PWD were added in 1982. As part of Unix system five, Bill Joy suggested to Bourne that job control and history should be added to the shell, to which Bourne disagreed. Unix version seven uh, with the Bourne shell as default was released in 1979. The C shell, the C shell was started by Bill Joy at Berkeley. According to David Corn, the C shell introduced command history and editing functionality. In the intro to the Unix C shell field guide, Bill Joy mentions the shell's original ideas were the history mechanism, which was inspired by the history and DWIM features of interlisp, invented by Warren Tietelman, aliasing, which was patterned roughly on patterned roughly on Lisp reader macros, and job control, which was added by Jim Culp. C shell also had the ampersand for background commands, here docs, CD path. Uh, directory stacks, path hashing, brace expansion, aka alternation used in pattern matching, expression evaluation, and command groups. On page 73 of the field guide mentions path name variables, which allowed you to pick specific parts of a path stored inside a variable using the syntax $p colon x, where x and x and r for root and h for header and t for tail and e for extension. Okay, yeah. Uh, the corn shell. The corn shell was developed by David Corn at Bell Labs and released in 1983. Corn um, cre created the precursor to the corn shell as a form interpreter by modifying the born shell, allowing built-in commands to be used in IO redirection and adding the echo PWD and test built-in commands. David Corn later implemented the first version of the corn shell prior to Unix System 5 shell. This first version took history aliases job control from C shell. According to Korn, the corn shell manual, Tilde notation, job control, directory stack, and the logout commands all came from the C shell page. Uh, C shell, and then pages in a reference, respectively. Corn shell also added VI line editing mode, written by Pat Sullivan, and Emacs line editing mode, written by Mike Veek. In 1988, version of the corn shell was extended uh, pattern matching, similar to regex as found in SED and grep at the time. This version was used as the basis for POSIX.2 standard in 1992, aka IEEE POSIX 1003.2 or ISO slash IEC 9945-2 for everyone who loves their standards, which created POSIX standards for shells and utilities. Uh, the Corn Shell Manual from 1992 mentions the following features. Integer arithmetic, uh, less than and greater than symbols to open file for read and write, arrays, data types, and variable attributes. Metanic C Shell or TCSH, Tinex C shell was developed by Ken Greer, TSSH based on the C shell, but added uh, additional features, including command and file name recognition and completion written by Mike Ellis and inspired by the Tenex OS by BBN. The Almquist shell or Ash. Kenneth Almquist first released the Almquist shell in 1989. It was a re-implementation of system five shell with added features, including local variables inside functions function definitions overriding built-in commands, uh, pattern negation, and job control from the Berkeley C shell. He originally left out aliases in history. Almquest was used by Android until version four when it shipped to MKSH, a derivative of the corn shell. Um, and then they continue with the history on the um, on bash, the RC shell, the Z shell, the POSIX.2 shell and standard utilities, the Debian Almquist shell or dash, um, it ends with the conclusion today, dash, bash, oh, the third one would have made that rhyme. Today, dash, bash, and boron are the shells still in use in the Linux and Mac OS world. MKSH is the descendant of the corn shell and is used on Android. 
FreeBSD uses TCSH, where it's very controversial. Uh, NetBSD uses ASH. And finally, OpenBSD uses KSH. All the shells have had an immense influence in the computer world, even crossing over to Windows. However, there is another story. This other story also involves CTSS. However, it quickly diverges and in the end merges into one story. This story is the story of where DOS and Windows command line shells come from. This is the story we'll be covered in the next article. Um, and then there's a big list of references and sources. That was interesting. Thank you, Christian. Mm. Yeah, well, well researched and linked to all the history bits and pieces. Cool. Uh, we have also a new release of OpenBGP. 7.5 is available. Uh, and the undeadly.org OpenBSD journal lets us know this is from the routing touting department. Our favorite BGP daemon, OpenBGPD, has a new version, 7.5, out. The announcement reads, quote, we have released OpenBGPD 7.5, which will be arriving in the OpenBGPD directory of the local OpenBSD mirror soon. I guess by the time you listen to this, it will be there. This release includes the following changes to the previous release. They implemented RFC 9234, route leak protection and detection using roles in update and open messages. A full support for RFC 9, uh, not RFC 7911, advertisement of multiple paths in BGP. Include BGP LGD, a fast CGI server providing a REST API of BGP control built by default, but can be excluded with dash dash disabled BGPD, BGP LGD, too many different uh, consonants. Um, Add the FIP and TCP MD5 support for FreeBSD. Okay. Implement, no, not implement. Disable Linux FIP support by default. Add an dash dash enable dash netlink configure option to enable it for testing and development. Improve BGPD FIP code, make it more portable and properly handle IPv6 scooped, not scooped, scoped addresses. OpenBGPD portable is known to compile and run on FreeBSD and the Linux distributions Alpine, Debian, Fedora. Red Hat Enterprise or CentOS and Ubuntu. It is our hope that packagers take interest and help adapt OpenBGPD Portable for more distributions. We welcome feedback and improvements for the broader community and from the community. Thanks to all the contributors who helped make this release possible. And OpenBSD Journal adds, as always, we look forward to fetching and using the new code and we thank the OpenBGPD developers for their efforts in improving this part of the routing code we all benefit from because this runs the internet or in large parts makes it work. Yeah, it's really, I mean, do they do releases often? I mean, I, cause I was speaking to Claudio about some of the FreeBSD stuff and suddenly there's a release. So it's really cool. I think they maybe yeah, they cut them a lot. Yeah, they seem to have a schedule of sorts. It, it's nice to see software being released and it not taking a long time. Yeah, frequent releases are good and shows the world that people are behind this and maintain the code. Uh, luckily, we have feedback and questions in this one, but no beastie bits. So sometimes it's either off. Do, but do, you, want always... a, do you want a beastie bit, Benedict? <laughs> a, a small bit. Do we I'll have you, one? I'll give you. I'll give you. A, I'll give you some Scottish trivia as your beastie bit. Oh yeah, here we go. Uh, I, I have no idea what the origin of this is, but it's very common to have pubs in in the UK called the Red Lion. Um, yeah, I, I've seen a couple of those. Now and, that and, you mentioned, and it. the Red Lion is um, is the Lion Rampant, which is also on the flag of Scotland. And so any bar called the Red Lion is inevitably called the Beastie. And so if someone says, do you want to come to the Beastie? They actually mean the Red Lion, but 
as, as a stranger in a strange uh, land, you might have some trouble. Well, Scotland is also the only uh, country that I know who has a an animal in its uh, coat of arms, I would say, that doesn't exist, like the unicorn. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, it's the national animal of Scotland. Yeah, even better, right? <laughs> like, that's saying something. Uh, Are you saying Scotland doesn't exist? Because I'm really sure it does. No, no, I, I've I been can there. It. It's out the I window. can confirm it. I was there, <laughs> but I didn't see many unicorns, although I didn't did try much. Any, maybe... Did you see any horses, Benedict? Uh, I saw them. I wasn't out in the countryside much, so maybe they're just shy and not in the cities. Are you sure that horses exist? No, not that you mention it. <laughs> well, what happened to the unicorns? Ah, well, there's a whole movie about it. Um, and uh, it involves Red Bulls and stuff. Um, okay, so that is the, the Scotland. I didn't know that. But there's also a lot of pups called or, Red Dragon. There's called the Red Lion. I've never, <laughs> heard of a, I've never heard of a bar called a dragon. Lots of red lions, though. Yeah. And, anyway. Okay. Um, Here we go. You, you send us questions, and we like to answer them. But we can only answer your questions if you send them to us. So please send your feedback to, or is it feedback at bsdnow.tv? Yeah, it must be. Um, and we will talk about your questions on the show. And this week we start with a question from Ludensen, and they write, Hi, Benedict, Alan, Tom, and JT. Thank you so much for a great and informative show. Thank you. Today, the diversity of available computers is going up. ARM, RISC-V, and others are mixing in with AMD64 and i386 architectures. And of course, we all want to run BSD on every single one of our devices, if possible, like BSD TP-Link Router Project. But the support for BSDs are often scant. So as a community, we mainly have to rely on dedicated community members putting together a working image for the device and sharing it. And luckily, there are many such dedicated members. But the information and source coming with these images vary greatly from absolutely nothing to full Git repos. I would like to hear your discussion and opinions on how much information you, as a person, need to trust and use a new BSD image, or from what kind of, or from one from a community member. Looking forward to an informative discussion on the show. Kind regards from the paranoid noob. <laughs> okay. So most of the time, I am trusting the BSD community at large that they will put out something that's not evil of sorts and that is uh i mean i'm not sure what you mean with trust there but i'm typically testing out stuff on a test machine anyway before i put this into production something that i find or want to try out so this if even something goes wrong or is not trustworthy after the fact then i just delete the stuff and be gone with it if it hasn't stolen my credit card information by then <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah i mean I, there's a difference between like project official images and like if you want to run on some new hardware that doesn't have time for project images yet, there might just be an image that somebody has put up. Mm. Um, I, I don't know how much you can trust a random image. I'm not going to say you can trust random images, but I will say that the tools in FreeBSD, and I know OpenBSD is very proud of this, and I think NetBSD as well, um, all of these images can be built quite straightforwardly from the systems. This is like a massive difference between Linux and the BSDs. Um, in the BSDs, we have always had this concept of self-hosting, which is where the system can build itself. And we've always pushed for things to be self-hosting. Now there's like, I mean, OpenBSD are a lot harder about this than FreeBSD and NetBSD are. So, but you can cross build images. Um, 
So if you want to run FreeBSD on an ARM board that doesn't have a release yet, it is not hard to build your own image. You need to look in, uh, I mean, if there's no release images yet, then you would need to look at something like Poudrier image to build your image. But if you can find out how someone else has made their own image and they tell you how to get it to boot, you should be able to build your own image. And then you don't have to trust anyone. You can do it yourself. But I don't think a random image, I don't think uh, giving somebody an in installation of FreeBSD on a virtual machine image is a really potent risk vector. But yeah. you have to evaluate this yourself. And typically, I'm not the very first person to try this out. So it's typically uh, mentions on Twitter or on the FreeBSD forums in our case or in other uh, places where people come together that someone has already tried this and it didn't work or they liked it so i trust those people trying it out uh like a third person reference so i typically am not the first person who try who tries out certain things unless i get it send a patch for a documentation bit or something but there's no risk in this one like oh the <laughs> the previous documentation just rooted my system um so first I trust the community, the people involved there. And if it's something completely, uh, someone completely new who has zero blog posts or zero mentions on Twitter or zero uh, replies or followers, or is not even involved in the community before, then maybe I'm a bit skeptic, but typically the community is still small enough that I don't, uh, I, I don't know everyone in there and I want new people to join. But at this point, it's I, st I think I have a fairly good, overview of who does what and what kind of things I can expect from certain people. Yeah, and, and there's a big difference, right? Like I would, I'd, I'd test an image from a random person on a test machine, but I might not install the desktop I work from every day from a random yeah. image. But I also think in the same regard that if, unless you're picking really exotic hardware to run your core stuff from, you should be able to get release images. Um, but you need to interrogate the information you get no matter where it comes from to make sure it is valid and you're not dealing with a bad actor because it, the commands you read from the handbook could easily just be like rm-rf your whole system <laughs> yeah. and if you type that in that is you know it's sad that it was there but you do have to have some responsibility and so like a little bit paranoia is okay you can build your own stuff um mm. i trust the project releases because you see all the code that goes into them it's very easy to track the provenance of where the stuff comes from and if you can't trust the people doing the project releases, then you can't trust the code at all. But yeah. I, I think you're fine. Um, yeah, so mix, mix and match. Figure out what works for you. Mm -hmm. Okay, but definitely thanks for this kind of uh, uh, feedback. We never had this sort of feedback before, but it's definitely something we should think about uh, when we just randomly download stuff or uh, like, the B, like some of the Linux people do it. Uh, oh, just execute this random shell script that you just, curled from the web and what could possibly go wrong yeah well a lot of things but that's a different discussion and next up is vdar so on this one i need to explain something so when i had the recording a couple of weeks ago with alan about this feedback and i looked it up before we actually went to this place and i was like quickly telling alan on our secret uh, show channel oh we actually had this before because i remember the contents it turned out it wasn't this case so we grabbed the whole BSD now feedback archives that have been uh, created over the years and they couldn't find it. So it was my error that I accidentally mixed this up either with something uh, that I read somewhere else or it uh, arrived in the feedback inbox for BSD now and I read it there and remembered it while I was recording this episode. And so I thought I had 
uh, actually done this episode or this feedback before. So I didn't. It was my error. So that's why I'm reading it now and make it officially the feedback of this episode. This goes, hey, lads, thanks for making the podcast. I've picked up a lot of good info from your show. Great to hear. I have a story I would like to share with you. Here we go. When buying a new workstation for my home office, I ended up getting a chassis with RGB LED lighting. The default mode for the LEDs is to continuously cycle through all the colors, which can be quite distracting. On my quest to control the lighting, I found out that these devices usually need proprietary drivers that will surely never be available for us FreeBSD users. But there is an open source project working to reverse engineer them. OpenRGB. It's OpenRGB.org. However, its support was limited for, to Windows, Linux, and macOS, and trying to build it on FreeBSD results in a barrage of compilation errors. It's written in C++, which I know next to nothing about, but I like a challenge, so I went ahead with trying to add FreeBSD support to it. Great! It turns out to be easier than I had thought, although I did have to disable support for a few lighting controllers due to compiler errors I was not able to fix or work around. Once I had it building and running, I cleaned up my changes and submitted a merge request to add FreeBSD support, and it was accepted and merged! We can now control RGB LED devices on FreeBSD. Woohoo! Great! I also submitted a PR for a port, which will hopefully have been committed to the ports tree by the time you're reading this. Uh, we should check this um, while, while I'm continuing to read. Uh, call for help. As my C++ skills are lacking, I could not get the code for Gigabyte RGBF or RGB Fusion 2 GPU, Holtec A070 and Holtec A1FA to build, and thus had to disable them. If anyone is interested and willing to give it a helping hand and help to get these to build, would be very much appreciated. P.S. There's also a plugin collection, which I intend to port in the near future. Oh, wow, great. For those who like funky effects like sunrise, gradient, waves, bloom, rain, and others. Our two-year-old is very fond of the hypnotoad effect. Excellent. Colorful regards. Oh, great. That's a nice story of, hey, I have a problem, and I try to fix it myself, and suddenly I have a port that I maintain. <laughs> That's just amazing. It's, it's really cool. I, I was I was reading through their documentation, uh, the cast back. I was reading through their documentation trying to figure out if it would support my motherboard and my development machines hmm? or or the CPU. Um, I think maybe it supports Azeroth motherboards. I don't know about the a, the AMD CPU cooler because it's got really, it's got like a cycling fan and it's inside a case, so it doesn't bother me, but it would be cool to be able to control it. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't see anything. It is really cool that a listener has gone from wanting to scratch an itch to having contributed to an open source project. Mm -hmm. That's really so, good, Vidar. I'm really glad you've done this. It's really cool. Yeah. So at, at this point, when I record, or when we record this, uh, I check fresh ports. There's no open RGB uh, port yet, but maybe by the time this episode comes out. So check back for more in case you want to also have blinking lights and distract uh, cats and other uh, members of the family. These are always good to have. And you know, you never know what gets into that. I mean, if you're not that provisioned as a C++ programmer, then maybe you understood how the FreeBSD port system works and now you port something else that's in a different language or something that you understand easier. And who knows, then you become the next ports committer. Yeah, and this is, yeah, Hans was saying hello. Um, <laughs> it's just a cat purring into the Yeah, microphone. well, there it is. Um, th this is this is how we get better at things, right? I mean, you, you work on things you don't know how to do. Um, I I started doing FreeBSD development because I wanted to run some project I had on Linux and a Raspberry Pi on FreeBSD, and I needed an SPI driver, so I wrote 
an SPI subsystem. Like this is how you start. Like you scratch your itch and then you eventually end up doing things. Uh, and it's really cool. I'm really glad you did this. Um, and even if this is the end, it's still cool. You can control the LEDs on your computer. Yeah, definitely. So thanks for this feedback. And that is all that we have for you this week. Again, send us uh, anything that you want to have in the future episode of BSD Now, which will definitely be around next week. Uh, show notes, questions, comments, anything you found on the web relating to BSDs, send us to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And we'll be back again, as mentioned, with another episode next week. BSD meow. Meow. BSD meow. <laughs>